celebrate with her. Uh, and as they gathered, they enjoyed good food and drink and happy celebration because of this new birth, this baby boy who had come into the world. And so as the night went on, they continued to celebrate Edward. They continued to have a good time. And somewhere along the way, one of the guests said to the mother, well, why don't you bring the little fella out so that we can see him? Mother goes to the room and to the crib to get the baby so that she can bring him so that the guests could celebrate how cute he was. And she gets to the crib and Kimmy, she looks into the crib and realizes that he's nowhere to be found. She begins to panic and she, gets a, she begins to panic and gets hysterical because he seemingly has been lost. So she panics and she freaks out until she suddenly realizes that she had dropped the baby off at her parents' house earlier that day and had totally forgotten about it. They had celebrated all night long and had completely forgotten about the reason for the celebration. We are sometimes in danger of doing the very same thing. Forgetting about, we have to be careful not to get caught up and forget about the reason for the Christmas season. We have to be careful not to get so busy with celebration and traditions and festivities and shopping, might I add, that we forget about what Christmas is actually about. It was in the mid-19th century that Christians began to see the secularization of the celebration day of the birth of Christ as the shift toward Santa and gift giving and gift exchange and replaced the celebration of the advent of Christ. Gift giving was already uh, something that had been uh, around, but it had not overtaken the observance of Advent gift giving, you'll recall, was brought to be and popularized because of the gifts that the wise men, the magi, brought when they met Jesus, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But that gift giving and gift exchanging and all of the secular, secular uh, ideas around it had not overtaken the Christian thought of the importance of observing the advent until around, at least in this country, the mid-19th century. Uh, it had overtaken that and gift, gift exchange and replaced uh, the advent of Christ and giving to the poor and needy without expectation of receiving anything in return. It was a shift. Uh, the poem, y'all know I like poems. The poem a visit from St. Nicholas, written by Clement Clark Moore in 1822, helped 
popularize the tradition of exchanging gifts. And seasonal Christmas shopping began to assume economic importance, especially in this nation. You likely know the poem by a different name that is actually not the title, but rather the first line of the poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas. I'm going to share this poem with you. I wanted to, I, 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 I say this a lot, and y'all have to believe me, I wanted to cut it down, but as I, as I kept reading, I said this last time, too. they're all so good. It's not on the screen, so you just have to follow me. Look it up when you get home, Google it or whatever you want to do, and you'll find it. The title of the poem is A Visit from St. Nicholas, and here it's how it goes. It'll be familiar to you, some of it anyway, uh, but some of the rest of it may not be. Here's how it goes. Towards the night before Christmas, when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse, the stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. Y'all know that part. While visions of sugar plums dance in their heads and mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave a luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes did appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment he must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his courses they came. And he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen. Oh, come on, Cupid, on Dancer, on Donner and Blitzen. To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the housetop, the courses they flew with the sleigh full of toys and St. Nicholas too. And then in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and I was turning around, down the chimney, St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed in full fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was, a, was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke, it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk and laying his finger aside in his nose, 
the side of his nose, and giving a nod up the chimney, he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team. He gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. A visit from St. Nicholas. This popular poem is indeed great, and it is really sentimental. And it admittedly helps even me to get into the Christmas spirit. Nevertheless, as merry as it is, it fails to accurately describe what Christmas is really about. It doesn't accurately describe it. So today, on this third Sunday of Advent, as we look at the second birth narrative of Christ in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, I believe Luke offers us a thorough reminder of what Christmas is really about. I believe he does that. And so I'll look at this passage, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20 in 3 different segments. And as we look at those, I believe we'll see some things that come out to us that help us, that help remind us what Christmas is about. First segment is verses 1 through 7, and I'll call it the occasion. The occasion, verses 1 through 7 of Luke chapter 2. Here's, here's how it reads. Let's read it together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all, to, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the, of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, uh, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. We'll stop there for a moment and talk about the occasion. The occasion, uh, this is Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, which is, by the way, the only inspired recorded account of Jesus' actual birth in the Gospels. You'll recall from last week's message that Matthew tells us uh, about the visitation of the angel to Joseph prior to the birth of Jesus, not the birth of Jesus, which caused him, you'll remember, to marry Mary rather than to put her away or to divorce her privately as he had originally intended. This is Matthew's account. Matthew goes on to also inform us about the visit of the Magi, uh, of Herod's attempt to kill the baby, and of the flight of the Holy Family to Egypt until after Herod's death. Matthew does not, however, tell us anything about the actual birth of our Lord. Only Luke describes the events of Jesus' birth. Only Luke describes it. It is here 
in this occasion, this account in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and indeed throughout uh, to chapter to, to verse 20. The first seven verses, though, are very secular in appearance. There is no mention of the hand of God, nor of any particular spiritual activity in these first seven verses. Yet, we do see a theme begin to unfold that will affirm God's sovereign hand and take us all the way through verse 10. Verse 20, that theme is some things that Christmas is about. So that's what I'm going to talk to you about today, what Christmas is about. First, as we look at this first segment, the account or the occasion, first thing Christmas is about is this. It's about history. Christmas is about history. It's in verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says again in verses 1 and 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. There's history in the Christmas story. Uh, here, Here it is. Contrary to the beliefs of some, Jesus is not a subject or the subject of fable, myth, nor legend. But rather, he is a very real and verifiable historical figure. He is is, uh, uh, confirmed and verifiable in historical context. He is indeed an actual person in history. And Luke's account of the occasion of the birth of Christ and some of those uh, things that he has considered to include in his account, uh, namely uh, some of the rulers, uh, confirm the fact that Jesus was a real person. History is in the story of Jesus. Caesar Augustus ruled the Roman Empire from 27 B.C., to A.D. 14. So by purposely including Caesar Augustus's name, Luke places the very real birth of Jesus unmistakably in the middle of Roman and Jewish history. There can be no mistake about the account of the rulers uh, who reigned and ruled during this time and Luke decides to include, one of the reasons he decides to include the names of these rulers is to completely verify beyond mistake, beyond question, that Jesus did exist. Not only does he do it and it verifies his existence, the mention of the names of these rulers also dates the time of Jesus' birth so that there can be no question. Jesus was born during this time. Not only is the historicity of Jesus affirmed in Luke's account uh, as it relates to history being uh, what Christmas is about, Luke, as a historian, also seeks to demonstrate the sovereignty of God in history. And so we hear this account of a census that was taken and the fact that uh, because this census was, census was ordered that Joseph and his family have to go back to uh, Bethlehem. 
None of these ha things happened by accident or coincidence. It was all orchestrated by the providential hand of God over history. So in the birth of Jesus Christ, the Christmas story, number one, is about history that confirms, no matter what others may say, our Lord really was born. There was actually a man named Jesus. He did actually have 12 disciples that followed him. He did heal the sick. He did raise the dead. He did uh, 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 open blinded eyes. He did all of these things. He is not a figment of imagination. He is not uh, a person of, of mythology or of legend. He is a historical figure. So Christian Christmas is Number one, about history, but Christmas is also uh, not just about history, it's also about heritage. And we see it in verses uh, three and four of our text. Here's what three and four say. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee uh, to the town of Nazareth, to from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Christmas is about heritage. Uh, nearly 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus, God had made a promise to David through the prophet Samuel. You remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, this is what Samuel says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made, for sure, made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Talking to David, the Jews eagerly expected David's successor, who would be called Messiah, the son of David. Jesus, when he comes to earth, John, would fulfill this eager expectation. He's on his way to fulfilling this. Christmas is about Heritage. It is no coincidence that Joseph was of the lineage of David and that Bethlehem, the city of David and the house of bread was where Jesus was born because it was the fulfillment of the promises of God and it links Joseph and David to the heritage, uh, Joseph and Jesus to the heritage. That is in the Christmas story. So Christmas is about history. It's about heritage, but it's also about hardship. We see it in verses 5 and 6. Here's what verses 5 and 6 say. Verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, his betrothed who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. What's the significance of this? The reality is that the most anticipated and glorious event in the history of mankind is drawing near and nigh. But for Joseph and Mary, it is accompanied by hardship and challenge. What do I mean by that? Uh, we were reminded in verse 4 of this very same chapter that Joseph and Mary live in Nazareth. And the fact that they live in Nazareth uh, in itself, uh, is, it, it, it speaks of challenge. The reason why is because Nazareth 
is a four or five day journey north of Bethlehem. Now, remember, Mary is pregnant, which in itself makes this a difficult journey. She's pregnant and they have to make this four or five day journey. And leaving Mary behind was not an option. If Joseph left Mary behind, she would be subject to ridicule and scorn and likely other things. If Joseph left Mary behind, he would not be able to witness uh, the birth of the Lord who the, the angel had told him would come. If Joseph left Mary behind, uh, there were too many risks involved. So he decides to not miss this moment and take his pregnant wife with him on this four or five day journey. It was a challenge. Hardship and overcoming hardship is a part of the Christmas story. It's likely that it was winter, uh, which made for less than ideal conditions for travel, especially for a young expectant mother late in her pregnancy. Uh, cold, long journey. Challenge. You ladies can just imagine the difficulty and discomfort associated. Somebody laughed. It wasn't a man that laughed. <laughs> you, ladies, you ladies can testify and witness and imagine uh, the difficulty and discomfort associated with a late-term pregnancy. She was late in her pregnancy, exacerbated by a long journey in the winter, in the cold, on a donkey. You can imagine that it was challenging. That there, there was some hardship. Somebody said it's hard in the hospital with the doctors around. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't none of the brothers could say that, but <laughs> it was tough. It was a challenge uh, for them. It was hardship involved. But then you men, you can relate to the challenge and hardship as well. Because you can imagine how difficult it likely was for Joseph. Yeah, I heard that. Brother like, yeah. Having to stop every so often so that Mary could be attended to in whatever way she desired to be attended to. So a four or five day journey might have ended up being a longer journey because of all the stops along the way that Joseph had to make to attend to his pregnant wife who is having difficult time on this arduous journey. You can just imagine that she probably had a cranky attitude. So he had to stop and attend to that. You can just imagine that she likely had some strange cravings along the way. Somebody say amen. She might have said, Joseph, can you stop at the 7-Eleven and get me a pickle and some ice cream? <laughs> so you can just imagine that not only was it difficult for Mary, but you can just imagine that there was hardship involved for Joseph as well as they traveled on this long journey but here's what I want to, want, want to point out to you about hardship and overcoming hardship as it relates to the Christmas story. Here it is. Following God's plan is seldom easy. 
And just because we face hardship while pursuing God's purpose doesn't mean that he is absent. In fact, it actually often means quite the contrary. Anytime we are pursuing God's ideal purpose, there will likely be challenges along the way. There will likely be obstacles along the way. There will likely be hardships along the way. But we learn, what we learn from this couple is what we have to uh, apply to our own lives, is that we have to purpose, Nate, to press on toward the mark. No matter what the obstacles are, no matter how cold it gets, no matter how painful it gets, no matter how difficult it is to press on through hardship. But there was, don't be mistaken, there was hardship in the Christmas story. But not only is the Christmas story about history, heritage, and hardship, it's also about humble circumstances. It's in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says this. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Christmas is about humble circumstances. Jesus didn't come in royalty. He certainly could have, but he chose not to come to earth in royalty, but rather he came in humility. The Holy Son of God was born in a stable or a cave where animals were kept, and his first crib was a common feeding trough. Why? Question. Why? Here's the answer. Though Jesus was completely God. There is no doubt that he was, even at this point, completely God. He saw no need to exert his authority with the grand kingly entrance. He didn't see a need for that. Instead, according to Philippians 2.7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He decided to do this. The phrase in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, emptied himself, is translated from the Greek word kenosis, and it means emptying. Christ emptied himself by, number one, veiling his glory. Number two, taking on himself a true but sinless human nature. And lastly, by voluntarily submitting to the will of the Father. Christmas story is about humble circumstances. Uh, at, at, at all times, Christ remained God retaining the nature and attributes of God, but he took the lowest place because he came for a reason. He took the lowest and the humblest place because he had a purpose in mind. He came uh, to minister among mankind, to preach to and save the poor and the brokenhearted. And in order to be able to do that, I told you last week that he had to decide to put his hands in the common bowl. Y'all remember the common bowl they eat from in Africa? Jesus decides that in order to preach to them, I need to be like them. So he humbles himself. And so the Christmas story is about humble circumstances, even when his disciples agreed or argued rather about 
who would be greatest in the kingdom. Jesus reminded them in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give himself, his life, as a ransom for many. Humble circumstances. So then the manger represents this kind of humility. That's the reason why he's born in the manger. Because he had to be able to relate to me and you. He had to be able to step into humanity and all humility to be able to minister to us, to be able to connect with us. So consciously and voluntarily, he decides to empty himself, take upon him the form, not of a, as a king. We'll see that when he comes back. You do know he's coming back. I think I need to do a wake-up check. Y'all woke? You do know he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's not coming as a baby. He's not coming in that way. He's coming as king of kings and lord of lords. But when he came the first time, he decides to veil his glory and empty himself so that he could get in the fight with us. So that he could go to the cross for us and shed his blood for us. But before he got there, he wanted to be able to connect with us. So Christmas is about all of these things. Christmas represents humility, the manger where Jesus was born. So we've finished the first segment of this passage, and in this first segment of this narrative, we learned that Christmas is about some things. It's about history and heritage and hardship and humble circumstances. Now, we move into the next segment, segment where we'll be reminded of at least a couple more important things about Christmas. We move into the second segment of this passage. It's verses 8 through 14. That in verses 8 through 14, we find out about the angelic visitation. The angelic visitation. Let's read verses 8 through 14. Here's what it says. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is, with whom he is pleased. This is... The angelic visitation of the shepherds. So, so far, as we have made our way to this point, we have been informed by Luke. It would be difficult to see the hand of God as we have looked at how Luke has informed us. It would be difficult to see the hand of God in these events. We haven't seen God's hand 
if you don't know the story. <laughs> if you just read the story isolated and read the story, it would be difficult to see God's hand thus far. We don't see it necessarily. Uh, Mary and Joseph appear only to be an unfortunate couple who are forced to make an undesired and unpleasant journey to Bethlehem. And it is there, tragically, that Mary gives birth in the most miserable of circumstances in a stable or a cave where the animals are kept. But now there is a transition in the story, and the hand of God becomes quite evident as an angel of the Lord shows up and shares some good news with a group of shepherds who just happen to be nearby tending their sheep. You don't really believe that they just happened to be there. You don't really believe that it just happened to be close to where these shepherds were tending their sheep. No, it didn't just happen. This was indeed the providential hand of God at work. Uh, the initial response of the shepherds was shock and fear due to God's radiant glory that shone round about. Initially, they were in fear and in amazement. They were mesmerized by God's Shekinah glory that caused them to be afraid. It accompanied the angel, but in verses 10 and 11, the angel responds with another thing, as the angel responds to the shepherds, responds with another thing that Christmas is about. Thus far, we've learned uh, those things that Christmas is about. And now we learn from the angel that Christmas is also about hope. Christmas so far has taught us that it is about history and heritage and hardship and humble circumstances, but I, along with the angel, submit to you, Christmas is also about hope. And it's in verses 10 and 11. Here again is what verses 10 and 11 say. The angel said, in response to the shepherds who were in fear because of the radiant glory of God. Here's what the angel says in response. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news of great joy, not just for some people. But for all people, here's the good news. Christ, the Savior, is born. That's the good news. It is, it is, it is a reference to uh, what, what the prophet Micah says in Micah chapter 5 when he reveals where the, where the Savior, the Messiah, would be born, that he would be indeed born in Bethlehem. But in Micah 5, 2, here's what the prophet says, 5, 2 through 5. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. 
Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is hope realized. Prophecy fulfilled. In the coming of the promised Messiah. Here's the good news about the coming of the Savior, Messiah. He brings salvation. Salvation is an important thing. But not only does he bring salvation from, they were hoping that he would bring salvation from the enemy, the enemies. But not only does he bring salvation from the enemies, he also brings salvation from sin. And not only for the Jews, but for all people. Jesus, in fact, would later say in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, he would describe this and he would say this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Christmas is about hope. Hope of the coming of the one who brings with him salvation. Salvation in many respects and in many regards and in many areas of life, namely uh, the forgiveness of our sins, the covering of our sins, hope. And then hope then, uh, as it is certainly uh, a part of this story, hope is affirmed by what Luke calls the heavenly host, a multitude of the heavenly host in verses 13 and 14. It's God's heavenly army. Show up. And when they show up, they do this in 13 and 14. They give glory to God. Look at what it says. Glory, they, 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 it's, not, it's not been established whether they were singing or chanting. But we do know that something was coming out of their mouth. Don't know if it was a song or a chant. Don't know if they were just talking, John, or if they were singing. But I do know that something was coming out of the heavenly host, the multitude of the heavenly host's mouth. They were saying these words, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. giving glory to God and expressing blessings of peace to mankind. So, to this point, we've learned that Christmas is about history. Christmas is right now, not then, only then, but even right now. Christmas is about history. It's about heritage. It's about hardship. It's about overcoming humble circumstances. It is about hope. And then in this last segment, of the narrative in verses 15 through 20, we learn of the final thing that Christmas is about. 
This last segment, verses 15 through 20, uh, I'll call the shepherd's response. Verses 15 through 20, here's what it says. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Verse 20, and the shepherds returned, glorifying glorifying, and praising God. For all they had heard and seen, and it had been told them. This is the shepherd's response. Uh, After this grand announcement, the shepherds hurry off to find the baby indeed in the manger. They hurry off to find the baby indeed in the manger. They wanted to see this wonderful truth for themselves. The angel had shared it with them and the heavenly host had affirmed it and glorified God. So they hurry off. They want to see if it is indeed true. Uh, And so they hurry off and they find uh, the baby indeed in the manger, and in verse 17, after seeing with their own eyes that what the angel had announced was indeed true, they had to share the news. Thus, they became the first human heralds of the Messiah's birth. They had to go and tell somebody about what they had seen. Then, in verse 20, They return to the job of shepherding as changed men. They are no longer the same. And their response brings us to the last thing in this narrative that Christmas is about. So just quickly to review, if you forgot any of those H's, let's talk about it real quick. Christmas is about history. It's about heritage. It is about hardship. It's about overcoming humble circumstances. It's about hope. But lastly, as confirmed by the shepherds, Christmas is about hallelujah. Did y'all catch that? Christmas is about hallelujah. And we see it in the response of the shepherds in verse 20. Look at what it says in verse 20 again. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They can't help but to glorify and praise God and give hallelujah because everything they saw and heard infected and affected them and changed them. And and, and listen, you need to know this. Christmas is about praise, worship of the Savior who has come. 
We ought to have a hallelujah in us as we think about the goodness of God and the fact that he decided to uh, become flesh and dwell among us. It ought to give us a hallelujah shout. So then the question comes at the end of this sermon, what should our response be? We can take a cue from the shepherds. We can take a cue from the shepherds because our response should be uh, similar to the response of the shepherds. Number one, we should respond in amazement. We should be amazed at the fact that God has come to be among us. We should respond with thoughtful meditation. We should thoughtfully think about the implications of Christmas and what it really means aside from all of the festivities and all of the traditions. We should thoughtfully meditate on what Christmas actually means. That not only should our response be those things, our response should be that of great joy. We should be overcome with joy when we think about this baby lying in a manger when he could have come riding on a stallion as king with the sword in his hand ready to overthrow the evil and the oppressors. But he comes lying in humility in a manger so that he could relate, Bob, to you and me. When I think about it, Nate, I ought to have joy on the inside of me. So then, not only that, our response should also be one of praise. You know what praise looks like? I don't know what it looks like for you because it looks different for all of us. But there ought to be some sign of praise about you. I don't know. It may just be a, a closing of your eyes. It may just be a waving of your hand, a patting of your foot. For me, sometimes it looks like tears coming down my face. Sometimes for me, uh, especially in the older days when I first, it looked like me running around the sanctuary. Nate, you ever ran around the sanctuary? <laughs> I don't know what praise looks like for you, but for me, sometimes it looks like me stealing away by myself and having a little talk with Jesus. And letting him know how much I praise him. Our response ought to be similar to that of the shepherds. Not only praise, there should be faith. Your faith should be uh, emboldened and strengthened and built up because of the Christmas story. Because of the real meaning of the Christmas story. There should be some faith. But not only faith faithfulness. They are different. You know they're different. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, but it does you no good to have faith without faithfulness because faithfulness is the outworking of that faith. It's the obedience to the author and the finisher of our faith. Faithfulness is what Joseph does when the angel comes to him and says to him, don't worry about it. That which is in Mary is of the Holy Ghost. And Joseph immediately obeys what God says to do. Faithfulness looks like what the shepherds did. After the angel says to them, fear not. For unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior. You need to go see him. 
Faithfulness is, faith is, I believe what you said, faithfulness is heading to Bethlehem. Heading to the stable, heading to the cave so that I can see him for myself. And then after I leave the stable, here is the other response. I need to go tell somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the next and the final response is, is wrapped up in evangelism. I need to tell somebody about Jesus. Because if he changed my life the way that I know he did, I need to be thoughtful enough about your life to tell you what he did for me. And the text says that the shepherds couldn't wait to tell folks what they had seen and heard. And so our response should be indeed similar to theirs. Christmas story is about these things. Christmas story is about history. Christmas story is about heritage. Christmas story is about humble circumstances. It's about hope. It's about all of these things. Christmas story is about hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Let's pray, Lord, we thank you for the Christmas story the true meaning of it. Help us, Lord God, to live out our true and proper response to what you've given us in your word. That we would not just be people of faith, but also of faithfulness. For you had been faithful to us. So help us, Lord God. We thank you for this time of joy that we recognize today in this third week of Advent. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, what I'd like to do now is I would like to extend those two invitations that we always extend at the end of our time together. First and most important one is for anyone who, like the young man last night, may be here and not yet surrender to the Messiah Jesus, the Savior Jesus the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star, the alpha and the omega, the author and the finisher, the lamb of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the great I am. Listen, you can almost plug in anything, and he's that. Anything you need, he's able to provide. So if you've been wavering and floundering and not yet connected with him. We want to extend to you the invitation tonight, not tonight, today, to do that. I'm still in last night. I don't know. Amen. 
if you're here, would you uh, let us know? Uh, we have our elders, deacons that are available to pray with you. If you would just let them know, let me know. Um, in fact, you can, you can do that now if you like. If not, you can do it afterwards. Or, as I always say, uh, it won't be too late if you decide to wait. I don't think. I don't know for sure. Be a good idea not to wait. <laughs> so if you're here and you're that person, let us pray with you so that you can know Jesus and who he is and who he will be in your life. And then secondly, the other invitation is to those of you who may have been visiting with us or it may be your first time visiting with us and you've decided that you'd like to unite with us. We want to we uh, lead you in that as well. Let the brothers know, or me know, and we can certainly uh, facilitate that process in helping you to become a member of the Bethel Hope family. I believe we have a God-given vision and mission to mirror heaven and to reflect what we believe heaven will look like when we get there. Uh, I say that with confidence because I know I'm on the way. You ought to know you're on the way too. You should not have a doubt in your mind. But that when we get there, we want to we wanna look back over what we've done while we've been here and say that, man, I'm here now and my church looked the same way that it looks here. And I'm so proud to know that I was a part of something like that while I was yet on earth. So if, you, if that connects with you, we invite you to be a part of what we're doing here at Bethel Hope. We want to reflect heaven so that every nation, tribe, and tongue can come together and worship together. Let us know and we can do that as well. Uh, last thing is we want to recognize any of our first-time visitors. If you are visiting with us for the first time, would you uh, raise your hand, stand for us rather. Would you stand if we have any first-time visitors? Amen. 